Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, the feeding of the 5,000. Theodore Dostoevsky is a famous Russian novelist. Uh, he wrote a novel entitled The Brothers Karamazov, and he is famous for a statement, uh, if God is dead, then everything is permissible. And I think he rightly understood that apart from a divine supernatural being outside of this world, who lays on us his moral expectations and his uh, moral laws and rules, we really are uh, left to our own devices. Uh, we really are nothing more than highly evolved animals. Might makes right, and there's really no way to really impose a uh, universal kind of ethic uh, by which all people uh, should live. He understood what happens if God is dead and if atheism is true. But he also understood that when it comes to the Christian faith, that the person of Jesus Christ and whether or not he is God is also the linchpin upon which Christianity will either stand or fall. In fact, he said it this way. The most pressing question on the problem of faith is whether a man as a civilized being can believe in the divinity of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for therein rests the whole of our faith. And I think he's exactly correct. And I would also quickly say then that when you come to the Bible, uh, there are a few stories, there are a few events that clarify this issue better for us than what is known famously as the, the feeding of uh, the 5,000. Because if this indeed really happened historically, if this really did happen on a particular day up in the northern part of Israel there in Galilee, then he is God. Because only God could multiply a few loaves and a few fish and feed not just 5,000 men, but probably somewhere between 20 and 25,000 people in total. Uh, this, of course, is a very familiar story to those of us who, who grew up in the church. It's a very popular story. It's a very captivating story. In fact, it's interesting to note that outside of the resurrection... This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of our Gospels. We find it here in uh, Mark chapter 6, but also in Matthew chapter 14, in Luke chapter 9, and also in John chapter 6. And we should also note that there is another feeding that is recorded in Mark's Gospel. Sometimes people get confused, but actually there are two feedings. There's the feeding of the 5,000 here in Mark chapter 6, and then there's the feeding of the 4,000 that we will study later in Mark chapter 8. Uh, this event was so significant in the life of Jesus that John chapter 6 and verse 15 tells us that following this miracle, the crowd attempted to take him and to make him a king uh, by force. In other words, they were, at least for this period of time, convinced that he was the deliverer of Israel and that he could break the shackles of uh, Roman bondage and Roman oppression. And so they wanted to make him king immediately. 
However, Jesus is a king, but he would realize his kingdom in a much different kind of a way. And so we will learn in Mark's gospel that he withdraws from the crowd. Uh, He goes away to pray. And then in John's gospel, we learn that the next day he comes back, preaches his famous bread of life sermon. It is so hard to hear uh, that the Bible says from that time on, many of the disciples went away. He then turns to the twelve and says, will you also go away? And Peter gets it right on that occasion. He says, where would we go? Uh, You alone have the words of eternal life. And so this is a high point in his life. It's a crucial event. Uh, Things are going to be different as he moves forward in his ministry following this event of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, there are a number of things we're going to learn from the text this evening, but I built our study basically around three major observations. First of all, in verses 30 through 32, we find that we uh, should find rest from ministry just like Jesus. Uh, There's nothing wrong with taking a sabbatical and perhaps everything uh, wrong with not taking one. Secondly, we should also have compassion for others like we see in the Lord Jesus, and we'll note that his compassion extends not just to their spiritual needs, though that is primary, but it also extends to their physical needs as well. And then finally, we will also see that we should meet uh, the needs of others just like Jesus does. Uh, We'll discover that there are certain things we can do. We'll also see that there's some things only Jesus can do. And then perhaps the most wonderful lesson of all in all of this uh, story, this event, is a little can become a lot in the hands of of Jesus. And so note with me first of all in verses 30 through 32, we should find rest from ministry just like Jesus. Look with me there at verse 30. Now the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Mark, if you have been following his argument in chapter 6, now returns to the mission assignment of the 12. Uh, He's interrupted it briefly in verses 14 through 29 with the uh, discussion and a recording of the execution of John the Baptist. And so this actually connects us back to what we previously studied in chapter 6, verse 7 through verse 13, and in particular, chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, so they, that is the 12, went out. They proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. And so here the Bible says the apostles, and by the way, the word apostles, apostoloi, uh, only occurs twice in Mark's gospel here and back in chapter 3 and verse 14. Of course, the word apostle has a technical meaning, the 12 who specifically were called by Jesus to be with him, but also the word itself means a sent one has the connotation of a missionary. And here I believe in this context, that's probably the best understanding. They have been on a mission trip. They've been on a short-term mission adventure, and so now they have returned as missionaries, and so they come back, and it says in verse 30, they rehearsed all that they had done and all that they had taught. 
Jesus sent them out as he sends you and me out. They had a job to do. Uh, Evidently, they experienced significant success because it says they cast out many demons. They healed many people and they preached the gospel of repentance. And so they've gone out with the authority of Jesus. They've gone out with the message of Jesus. And God has indeed blessed what they have done. And of course, he would bless us in the same way as we go in his authority and we preach his gospel. And so they returned to debrief. Uh, They returned to evaluate. Uh, They returned to talk about what went well, what did go well, where were our successes, where were our failures. And so basically we see a wonderful pattern emerge here with respect to how we do discipleship. Uh, Number one, we teach them. Number two, we send them out to do what we taught them. Number three, we have them return. And number four, we then have them report and evaluate. And the fact of the matter is, this model of discipleship really can't be improved upon. It's even something that is adopted in the secular world as well. And so Jesus has mentored them. Jesus has prepared them. He has sent them out. They've had good days and bad days, good meetings, bad meetings, good things, bad things. And now he brings them back to evaluate and they rejoice uh, in the good things that God has done in their ministry. But now secondly, also note that they need to get away for a while from their ministry. Yes, they shared what all the Lord has done going back to chapter 6, verse 12 and verse 13. Uh, They're excited about what has happened. Uh, They uh, are, are delighted that God has blessed what they have done as they had his authority and they received his delegated uh, commissioning. And so they, they've had good success. But they've worked hard. They've worked long hours. Uh, They're fatigued. Uh, They're worn out. They're tired. And so basically, Jesus says to them, yes, you have done good work, but now let's get away and take a brief sabbatical. It's been well said that some people will rust out in ministry because they are lazy, but there are others who burn out in ministry because they never take a break. And I'll be honest with you, many times I see both kinds of students uh, at the seminary. Uh, there are those who give every evidence of being uh, lazy, of being undisciplined. Uh, and if they're lazy and undisciplined in seminary, most likely, uh, David, they'll be lazy and undisciplined uh, in ministry as well. But I know some others that uh, they burn that candle on both ends. Uh, they work hard uh, and they keep working hard and they work harder and harder and harder. And if they're not careful, there may be the neglect of their marriage. There may be the neglect of their children. There may be the neglect of their own personal health. And so both extremes are to be avoided. I was blessed when I graduated from Bible college to have a wonderful North Carolina evangelist named Vance Havner uh, preach my graduation. He was a very witty man, and one of the things he said in this particular context is, if we don't come apart, we will come apart. And therefore, it is right for us to take a time of rest and relaxation, a, a sabbatical. And so the Bible says, Jesus said to them there in verse 31, come away by yourselves to a, a desolate place. Uh, come away and let's get some rest. Why? Because people were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. So Jesus says, come away and let's rest 
a while. It's interesting that if you go back to chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus during uh, a very busy time of his ministry did not have time even to eat. So as it was true of their Lord, so also now it is true of the disciples as well. I do think it's important that we note something here. You'll see the phrase desolate place uh, in your Bible. If you mark your Bible, I would note that. It occurs there in verse 31, occurs again in verse 32, occurs again in verse uh, 35. It does not mean a desert place, and some people have wrongly taken it that way. If that were the, to be the case, we've got a real problem when Jesus later in this uh, particular story tells the folks to sit down on the green grass. There's no green grass out in a, a desert. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible simply translates it a remote place. Uh, the NIV calls it a quiet place, and the New American Standard calls it a selected place. And basically it just means a place out of town. Uh, they're out in the field. They're out of the, out of the towns. They're out of the city, and they're just out in an area that's kind of open. And it's an area that's opened uh, with, with grass and trees and so on. So desolate just means a remote place, uh, a place where there's not a lot of people. And, of course, that's why they went there. Uh, they need some downtime. And they need a little R&R. They, they need to rest. I mean, if there's not time even to eat, then there's certainly no time to rest. Uh, there's no time to relax. Uh, there's no time for them to recuperate from the busyness of their, uh, of their ministry. Now, hear me very well. It was not a sin. It was not a sin for them to take a brief sabbatical. In fact, it would have probably been a sin if they had not taken this sabbatical. And the same is true for those of us like myself who are in ministry, but the same is true for all of us here tonight because we're all in ministry. We're all serving the Lord. We all have occupations. We all have demands on our time. And it is necessary for us to just sometimes step back, catch our breath, and just rest and relax for a while. In fact, if we happen to be in a period of time where there's great, great demand upon us, then it's all the more essential for us to find time to get away and be alone with the Lord Jesus, be alone with our family, be alone also with our friends. So verse 31, Jesus says, rest a while. And so they leave in verse 32. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. I draw five quick uh, practical insights then from the commands of Jesus here. Number one, there is a time to work. Read John chapter 9 verse 4 about the work the Father had given him. In other words, laziness has no place in the Christian life or Christian ministry. Secondly, uh, we should have periods of rest because Jesus tells us to. Thus, being a workaholic is not spiritual. In fact, it probably is sinful. In fact, if we're not careful, some of us can take our ministries and turn them into our God and turn them into an idol. Number three, rest is best when accompanied both by solitude. We need to get away. And companionship. There are times where perhaps we need to get alone, uh, alone all by ourselves, but here they get alone as a group. They get alone together. So there's both solitude and companionship. Fourthly, rest is not, uh, rest is for a specific period of time. It's not to be a permanent. We don't go on a permanent uh, holiday or vacation. But number five, and this is going to lead us into our next major uh, section, even while resting, be prepared for ministry if necessary. 
A devoted follower of Jesus is never off duty. So we should indeed find rest for ministry just like Jesus. But now number two, we should also have compassion for others like Jesus as well. Look at verse 33. Now, many saw them going and recognized them. And so they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore from the boat, uh, he saw, there it is again, a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and they said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he that is Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus has taken his disciples away. They've tried to find a place away from everyone so that they can find some rest and relaxation. They get in a boat. They begin to head across the Sea of Galilee. But the people see them and they watch them and they hypothesize evidently correctly as to where they're going. And so by the time they get there, they are already being thronged by the people as they get out of the boat. And what you have in the midst of this is one of the most precious statements in all the Bible. There in verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Many times in the Bible, our Lord is pictured as a shepherd and we are pictured as sheep. You note this in your notes. Jesus is the Lord who is my shepherd of Psalm 23. He is the rejoicing shepherd of Luke 15, 1 through 7, who goes after the one lost sheep. He is the good shepherd of John chapter 10 and verse 11, who lays down his life for his sheep. Uh, he is the chief shepherd of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, who honors his servants. He is the great shepherd of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. And one of my favorites that many people don't know is there. He is the shepherd lamb of Revelation 7:17, who guides us to springs of living water. On the other hand, the text says that we are, and these that Jesus encountered were sheep like those without a shepherd. And of course, if you've studied the Bible or you've studied uh, this whole issue of sheep and shepherds, you know that sheep uh, in the Bible are often portrayed, and correctly so, uh, as weak, uh, as foolish, as helpless. Uh, in other words, apart from a shepherd, a good shepherd, a great shepherd like Jesus, uh, we are stupid sheep who cannot take care of themselves, who cannot save themselves. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a wonderful German theologian. Uh, he was hanged just a few weeks before the downfall of Nazi Germany, uh, having uh, participated in an assassination attempt against Hitler. Uh, he wrote many wonderful books, one entitled The Cost of Discipleship, where he says when, when Jesus bids a man to come and follow him, he bids that man to come and die. 
He had great insight into the dynamics of what it means to, to live under the Lordship of Christ and have Him as our shepherd. And He speaks very specifically of these sheep and by uh, application to you and to me in our situation, apart from a great shepherd. Uh, there were questions, but no answers. Distress, but no relief. Anguish of conscience, but no deliverance. Tears, but no consolation. And sin, but no salvation. And he's simply pointing out that all of us like these in this particular setting desperately need a shepherd. But we need a particular kind of shepherd. Uh, As we're going to see, we need a shepherd who is compassionate. We need a shepherd who can provide for us. We need a shepherd who can protect us. What we, in essence, need is a shepherd savior. Well, because he is the good shepherd, he is conscious of their needs, both spiritual and physical. So we see, first of all, in verse 33 and verse 34, that people do have spiritual needs that we should address. Jesus has tried to get away for some rest and relaxation, but unfortunately, the people who were coming and going back in verse 31, number one, saw them going in the boat. Secondly, recognized them. Thirdly, ran there, that is to where they were headed in the boat uh, from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. So again, they're getting away to be alone. They're getting away to rest. And by the time they land the boat, there is a throng, a crowd waiting for them. Now, I don't know about you, but if that were me, I could be a little teed off. I could be a little frustrated. I could easily see Jesus sending the twelve out as his, um, as his front men, telling the folks, look, uh, we're tired. We need some rest. Uh, we're not interested. Uh, we, we need just to be left alone. So go away. We'll let you know when we're ready to get back together. Now, I could easily understand that. I could easily see myself doing that. So you look at the situation and you ask, well, was Jesus frustrated? Uh, Was Jesus angry? Was he depressed? Did he send them away? No. As I mentioned a moment ago, what you read here is one of the most precious verses with some of the most tender words found in all the Bible. He had compassion on them. That word means he was moved deeply within his soul. Uh, His heart was stirred. Uh, His innermost beings went out to them as he saw them in their situation. He saw them, the text says, like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, the spiritual leaders of Israel had become hirelings. Uh, They had become shepherds for hire, and they were manipulating the people. They were exploiting the people. If you want commentary on this, go read John chapter 10, but also go back and read Ezekiel chapter 34, and you'll understand that throughout Israel's history, the religious leaders had this propensity to manipulate and exploit the sheep and not to love them and not to care for them. In other words, Jesus saw the nation as sheep who were helpless, who were without direction, who were receiving no guidance, who were malnourished, and who lacked spiritual protection. He had compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. Now, what does a good shepherd do when he sees the sheep in this kind of condition? I love the next phrase, the last phrase of verse 34. And he began to teach them many things. He began to 
teach them many things. Whether you realize or not, this uh, evening, that was a fulfillment of a significant number of prophecies that looked forward to the coming of Messiah and portrayed him and pictured him as a wonderful teaching shepherd. In fact, in the wilderness, in Numbers chapter 27 and verse 17, the Lord, uh, Moses, pled with the Lord for a leader who he would raise up uh, as a shepherd. He wrote that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And, of course, we know that initially he raised up the man Joshua, but ultimately he raised up a greater Joshua, the man Jesus. But then again, as I mentioned a moment ago in Ezekiel chapter Chapter 34, in the first 22 verses, the Lord rails against Israel's leaders for having advocated their responsibility to care for the sheep. And then in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, he promises, quote, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, he shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Well, that Davidic shepherd has now appeared, and his name is Jesus. And just as Israel was lost in the wilderness, needing a shepherd as they came out of Egypt, so once more you have a picture here of sheep lost in a desolate place without a shepherd. And so the good shepherd Jesus arrives, and what does he do? He meets their most immediate and pressing need. He feeds them spiritually. He taught them many things. He taught them His Word. He starts where they needed Him most, and He meets their spiritual needs. He began to teach them not some things. He began to teach them many things. But Jesus cares about the whole person. Jesus cares not only about our spiritual needs, he also cares about our physical needs. Now, here's where there can be some real um, problem in terms of our spiritual lives. Some people only care about getting notches in their spiritual gun. So all they care about is a form of evangelism. Now, I say a form of it because I don't think it's authentic, but they want to be able to tell you how many people walked the aisle, how many people got saved, how many people got baptized, and they basically want to put on display their spiritual notches. On the other hand, there are people who do have compassionate, tender hearts, and their heart goes out to people who are hungry, as it should. And their heart goes out to people who don't have clean water, as it should. And their heart goes out to the fact that around the world there are so many preventable diseases if we could just get there with the medicines. And so their heart goes out for that. And if they're not careful, they can quickly get caught up in all of that because that, by the way, almost always provides an immediate gratification. You go dig a water well. And you now provide clean water for hundreds in a particular area, you immediately see the results and have immediate gratification. On the other hand, you may be a William Carey, an Adoniram Judson, a uh, James Frazier, who spends seven years in an area preaching the word before he has a single convert. That's a lot more difficult. 
So you say, is it spiritual needs or physical needs? And the answer is yes. We care about the whole person, but we never forget the fact that what does it profit a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, if they gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? No, the gospel is a message grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but there are implications that derive from the gospel that ought to be carried out that give authenticity and weight to the preaching of the gospel. You see, Jesus cares for our souls and our spiritual needs. After all, it is the Lord who said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? That's Mark eight thirty six. However, he also cares for our bodies and our physical needs as well. And so beside Mark uh, chapter 8, you might also want to take note of Matthew chapter 25, in particular verses 31 through 46, where Jesus tells his disciples to feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, give rest to the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit prisoners. In other words, hear me and hear me well, and for this crowd, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but that's okay. There is no social gospel. Uh, that is an oxymoron. In fact, it's simply a false declaration. There is no social gospel. But there are social ministries. Uh, there are, I like the phrase, mercy ministries that are the supernatural outgrowth of the gospel. And who's our model? But Jesus. He cared first and foremost for their spiritual needs, but he also had compassion for their physical needs as well. Verse 35, look at it. The hour is now late. And so the disciples bring this to uh, our Lord's attention in verse 36. And amazingly, they actually command Jesus in verse 36 concerning the people, send them away. It's an imperative in the original text. Send them away. Uh, send them to the surrounding countryside and villages that they may buy themselves something to eat. Uh, even in reading it in English, the tone of their voice is harsh, is it not? And I can certainly, we can certainly understand the logic. The hour's late. The people are famished. They need something to eat. So send them on their way. Uh, they're becoming something of a nuisance. And furthermore, we're not set up to do anything about this. Now, you don't actually learn until the very last verse. Verse 44. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. You add to that uh, women and children. And again, I agree with those who say most conservative estimate, uh, 20,000. Easily it could have been as much as 25 to 30,000. That's what makes what Jesus says in verse 37 all the more amazing. They command him in verse 36, send him away. He responds with a command and imperative to them in verse 37. You give them something to eat. The twelve say, kick them out. Send them on their way. Jesus says, no, keep them here and you give them something to eat. Now, as I was preparing for this message, one man that I was listening to uh, raised the question. It's an interesting one that we don't have an answer to, but he, his question was simply this. Had they obeyed what Jesus said, could they have actually been the uh, performers of the miracle? In other words, Jesus says, give them something to eat. When God commands us to do something, he always provides the resources for us to do it. So is it possible that they who had... Uh, cast out demons, who had healed the sick, 
could actually have performed the miracle on behalf of the Lord Jesus? We don't know. Because in unbelief, they simply say, this is, this is crazy. Uh, this is beyond our ability. So whether they could have done it or not, we don't know. This much we do know. God does want us to have compassion on those who are in need. He wants us involved in their lives. Yes, we meet first and foremost their spiritual needs, but also we need to meet their physical needs. Never forget, Jesus indeed intends for us to minister to the whole person. So we should find rest for ministry like Jesus. We should have compassion for others like Jesus. But number three. We should also seek to meet the needs of others like Jesus. Look at verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? Uh, And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. So then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the, note it, green grass, So they sat down in groups of hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, he broke the loaves, and he gave, and I'll note again in a moment, it's in the present tense, he kept on giving them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. You see, it's one thing to recognize a need. It's another thing to meet it all together. And indeed, James chapter 2 informs us that if we see a need and we don't meet it, then we have dead faith. I've often said that the church is responsible to care for her own, If you and I see someone in need and we have the resources to meet that need and we don't, I do believe we sin against the Lord and he will hold us accountable. And so the fact of the matter is, when we see a need, we are to step forward and do our best to meet that need. Now, at first blush, Jesus' command in verse 37, you give them something to eat, seems unreasonable. It seems insane. Still, give the disciples a little credit. Uh, They give it their best shot. Uh, They may be full of unbelief, but at least they obey. And so they do get to enjoy the miracle that is about to take place. Now, three observations I make very quickly here. Number one, when given a command like this by Jesus, well, at least do what you can. Uh, They do a quick inventory, cost assessment. They calculate uh, 200 denarii. That, by the way, is eight months' wages for an individual. It'll take that much to feed the crowd. Problem We don't have that kind of money. So there's strike one. Then Jesus asks them to do what uh, they can and to see what they have. He gives them a double command there in verse 38. Do you see it? Go, command number one. See, command number two. So they quickly survey the crowd and they come back with their take. Uh, We found uh, five loaves and we got two fish. Now it is John chapter 6 verse 9. That records for us the fact that these are crackers and sardines. And don't think of loaves of bread and don't think of big fish. Think of little crackers and little sardine type things. It was a young boy who basically stepped up uh, and put before them no doubt what a well-caring uh, mother had given her son earlier in the day when he said, I hear uh, a commotion out there. Maybe that religious guy, Jesus, is back around. I'm going to go out and see. And so, well, you got to have something to eat, honey. So two little fish. Some crackers, that's what they bring back to Jesus. Well, that's not worth much. 
when uh, your crowd for potluck is somewhere between 20 and 30,000 strike two. So the disciples obeyed. And this is all they're able to do. But that's good. Because now it's quite evident that this problem is beyond their ability to handle. And if Jesus doesn't intervene, if Jesus doesn't do something, then nothing is going to happen. At least nothing good is going to happen. By the way, you're pretty much, I think, aware of just what a hungry crowd of 30,000 might be like. I mean, I don't know about you all. Maybe you're just so much more super spiritual than me. But when I get hungry, I get mean. In fact, I think on some occasions I momentarily lose my salvation before the Lord gives it back. Often when I do marriage seminars, I tell women, never make a demand of a husband on an empty stomach. The odds are he's going to growl and try to eat you instead. So don't do that. Just feed the boy, and then you can pretty much usually get anything you want. Well, so you got a hungry crowd. you got screaming, crying, hungry children. This is a, this is a situation that is set up for absolute disaster. But... The good shepherd takes command. Verse 39, he commands them to get organized and to sit down on the green grass. In verse 40, reminiscent of Israel in the wilderness, they sit down in groups of 50s and 100s. Go back and read Exodus chapter 18 and verse 21. And so in obedience, the people do as he says. And in essence, the party is about to begin. So do what only you can do. But secondly... Trust Jesus to do what only he can do. You see, God loves to demonstrate his power and sufficiency in our lives. He often allows problems to enter into our lives so that we can indeed turn to him and see his grace and see his resources meet our needs. In other words, as one man said, he wants us to come to the end of ourselves. And when we get there, we'll find him waiting for us. Warren Wiersbe, that wonderful Bible teacher, says it exactly right. Jesus looked at the situation not as a problem, but as an opportunity to trust the Father and glorify his name. And so Jesus now becomes the host of what is nothing less than a messianic banquet, one far different than the one that we saw back when Herod beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, The desolate place is about to become a place of plenty. Uh, As Moses led Israel through the wilderness and met their physical needs by providing manna and quail, a greater Moses, who is not only the good shepherd but also the bread of life, now feeds his people with an abundant feast unlike anything they have ever known. Verse 41 in many ways is so simple that there's so many things more you want to know about what happens on this occasion. But verse 41 and 42 just laid out very simply, first of all, Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. Secondly, he blessed the food. Thirdly, he broke the loaves. Fourthly, he kept on giving to the disciples that they might distribute it to the people. And then he divided the fish and gave to all. Some have speculated that perhaps he prayed the common Hebrew table prayer. Praise be to you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. And so he breaks the bread, he breaks the fish, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. And verse 42 records very simply but amazingly, and they all ate 
And they were all satisfied. All. No one was left out. No one went home hungry. In fact, no one went home unsatisfied. They were all satisfied in overflowing compassion. He has met their needs and provided everything and more than they expected. But then thirdly, recognize the little can become a lot with Jesus. The banquet in the wilderness, the feast of the 5,000 comes to an end. The leftovers were gathered, and it's not by accident that the Bible says 12 small uh, wicker-type baskets uh, full, one for each of the disciples remained. And verse 44 concludes the story by teaching us and informing us that it was 5,000-plus men that celebrated that Messianic miracle that day. Think about it. Five loaves, two small fish, multiplied beyond measure in the hands of Jesus. You see, where we see a lack, he sees an abundance. Where we see human problems, he sees divine solutions and possibilities. If there's anything we ought to learn from this story, it is this. A little does become a lot in the hands of Jesus. That can be something physical like that. But let me just say to you also, that can be your life and my life and your talent and my talent. If you're like me, you're not super talented. You're not super gifted. Uh, The fact of the matter is, you really don't have a whole lot to give the Lord, but it's amazing if we give Him what we have, and we do so in faith, and we do so out of gratitude for what He has done for us, He often surprises us, does a lot more with it than we could ever hope or even imagine. I conclude, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes, and I quote, The Bible is not a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. You see, the best thing about a story and about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling the one big story, the story of how God loves his children and how he comes to rescue them. Jesus showed his love. He came to the rescue of his disciples, of his sheep in a desolate place when he fed the 5,000. But even better than that, he showed his love and came to the rescue on a lonely hill called Calvary where he died on the cross. I do agree with with Miss Jones that there are not many heroes in the Bible, but there is one hero in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. He is the rescuer of the sheep. He is the good shepherd of our souls. He is indeed our Savior. Spurgeon said it so beautifully, Come then, weary, hungry sinner. You have nothing to do but to take Christ. Open your mouth and receive the food. Faith to receive what Christ provides is all that is needed. And Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, The Lord will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. So let him gather you and let him carry you wherever you find yourself this evening. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the shepherd who cares for his sheep. I'm thankful that you care for us when we are hungry and we need spiritual food and nourishment. I thank you, Lord, you care for us when we are broken, uh, when we are hurting, when we are discouraged and depressed, when we come to the end of ourselves and find that we're not sufficient for the task. We find you right there, our good shepherd, waiting to pick us up and carry us where we need to go. 
Lord, I confess to you that I am like a, a sheep. I am dumb. I am stupid. I am weak. I am foolish. Left to myself, I would destroy myself, lose myself. And yet I am so grateful that you as the good shepherd love each one of us in this room so much tonight that when we do go astray, you come looking for us. You don't leave us to our own devices. You don't leave us out there in the midst of the hungry, ravenous wolves. But you come and find us. You bandage us up. You pick us up and you bring us back to your fold. And so, Lord, I thank you for this wonderful miracle, a great miracle recorded in all four Gospels. It teaches us that as the bread of life, you indeed feed hungry mouths. And as the bread of life, you indeed feed hungry souls. Hallelujah. What a Savior, what a shepherd we have in Jesus. We pray in his mighty and strong and saving name. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.